we have been looking a little bit at the uh, book of Romans, and this morning we move into chapter two at lightning uh, pace. We are unpacking uh, Paul's understanding and explanation of the righteousness of God. That is a defense of God's right actions because of the nature and character of human rebellion against God. And Paul is laying out a rather stark description of the human condition. And last week we started to talk about the fact that uh, that is always going to be uh, awkward in any given culture. And there are going to be things that run contrary to God's original design, which are contrary to his desire for people in the way that he created them because of our brokenness, our sin, and our selfishness, and in the various ways in which those things play out in some wonderful combination of nature and nurture. Nature being fallen and broken by sin. We know this oftentimes because of the tragedies of things like cancer, uh, like birth defects, like uh, chemical imbalances, which cause us uh, to uh, have difficulty processing our life around us, or uh, the realities of economic uh, inequalities or structural wrongs that allow one group to benefit while others uh, are struggling or actually barred from helping. And so whatever those combination of institutional and human things and brokenness and fallenness of the world, Paul has laid out for us that all of those things which rob us of our humanity, rob us of what it means to be created in the image of God, all of those things lead to the nace for and the justice of God acting rightly in setting things the way they are supposed to be. This is, of course, done uh, only ultimately through the work of Christ himself. So as we move on to chapter 2, Paul's arguments just simply develop, and we are reminded of our own reactions to other people's sins. Because what happens when we read a list like we read at the end of chapter 1 is we go, I know a lot of people who fit into those categories. My stars, I was telling God just the other day about those people. And Paul, having been a rather zealous Jew himself, is rather well acquainted with what happens when in a particular zealous desire for our own self-righteousness, for the glory of God, for whatever we may rationalize, we can become very effective in judging others. And Paul wants to warn us against that. So let's put the text in front of us. Romans chapter 2, I'm actually going to read through verse 6. Hear now God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, 
and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard-heartedness, the uh, impotent, uh, sorry, infinite heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cool shade of the clouds and the ability to rest in your presence and to hear afresh your word, we ask, Lord, that in all of the ways that you bring us to a sure knowledge of who you are and our need for you, that we trust you. Lord, we ask that as your word is preached this morning, that it would be in line with what is true of you and whatever is not true. May those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. We've said a lot that the human condition hasn't really changed, that there's really nothing new under the sun. And so it, it, it's usually not helpful uh, from a truth perspective, though helpful maybe from a rhetorical perspective, to say that we are facing new and unprecedented ways in which our society and culture are declining. It's just not true. It's just what we're experiencing in our own culture's uh, successes and failures in embracing kingdom uh, ethics and living according to God. And so in one way, the comforting realities we see around us is that this is really not all that new, though it's never fun to go through. We are always called to do the same thing uh, and to care for and to live out the kingdom ethics, as I am uh, rather fond of repeating. And when we look at a passage like this, clearly we have all experienced in one way or another or no loved ones who have experienced judgment inside the church in a way that has appeared to them to be harsh or uh, incorrect or not done right or maybe completely unfounded and abusive. We've seen everything along a perspective, and so we are concerned rightly often about judgment within the church. And then in our culture these days, we're looking at what's happening in academia, or at least parts of academia, where it feels like certain kinds of speech that is quote-unquote more conservative, whatever that means, is being less and less allowed free uh, discussion in the halls of uh, our higher institutions, um, where in other places, one is wondering if other parts of conversation are discouraged because of different political positions. And we find out that really judgment and judgmentalism uh, is not limited to any particular political group or any particular sexual orientation or ethnicity, that the human condition is that it's really quite comforting to judge the other. It is a means of establishing some sense of self-worth and identity to judge the other. And yet at the same time, Paul here in no way suggests that everything is okay. Because our reaction to it, and this is often uh, true inside and outside the church, 
is to say that since we're really bad at judgment, since we do judgment in a mean or, or inappropriate way, what we won't do is judge. This creates a problem with the Bible. Because the Bible does say that if you don't judge or discern people driving off of a cliff, emotionally, physically, what have you, and you don't warn them that they're driving off a cliff, you're not a very good or helpful person. You're actually not nice. If nice is just waving and watching somebody drop off a cliff, then being nice isn't helpful. And we can't hide behind the idea that, well, I didn't want to judge them and say that taking a right off of a cliff was worse than, you know, taking a left and driving on to the road again. And so we struggle. We struggle with how to embrace a caring reality in which the brokenness and sin that would invade my life and yours is raised in our friends and loved ones in such a way that it gives them the opportunity to repent, to do business with Jesus, and at the same time, not create an opportunity where they feel that it is our moral judgment of them, our assuming a position of judgment, that we now hold the gavel, or that we can declare the sentence. It's never been easy. Paul writes his books about the weaker and the stronger in these chapters. We are in the same condition that our brothers and sisters have wrestled with for generations. How do we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? The calling is always the same. The challenges put on different names and hats, but they give us the same situation. There is a, uh, a movie. I won't tell you why I watched it recently because it's not important. It's called Failure to Launch. And it's a movie about this supposed social condition where an increasingly number of young people aren't able to embrace adulthood. They don't leave the house. They end up feeling quite comfortable and staying uh, for, well, long periods of time. And in this romantic comedy, uh, the, uh, the idea is that someone comes in, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, and she's going to help young men launch into adulthood by encouraging them uh, in various ways about their self-worth and their ability to get a job and their likelihood of attracting a mate. What I thought when I read Paul's words here is that as we are wrestling with what it means to become effective believers, we want to embrace the reality of the gospel and the safety and security of our Father's house, knowing that we are unconditionally loved and at the same time struggling with what it means then to take on our role in the Father's business. And that the challenges we often face in launching into a Christian life is that on one point we can launch zealously in a way in which we condemn those around us and end up never coming home because we start like the older brother to even judge how good our father is, seeing him as too permissive and gracious. 
or we can be afraid of failure and stay in the home because we are afraid of failure and not taking that chance and not moving out. This morning I want to break this text down in three ways. Riffing off of a little bit Jesus' own encouragement of the difficulty of what it is to grow spiritually in Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils. Because growing up in faith isn't easy. There are many things which would rob us of the joy and rob us of the strength. First of all, there is right and wrong, verses 1 through 3. Four, it's repentance that God is looking for in verse 4. And then finally, the results, verse 6. So right and wrong. Don't need to go into too much detail, but clearly there is something to judge. There is something to discern. There is something to recognize that it is self-destructive in my own life and the life of the others. It isn't, interestingly enough, when Jesus warns us about judging that there is nothing in the other person's eye. It just so happens that what's in my eye is significantly larger than theirs. So I see a speck in yours, but I have a log in mine. The danger of that is viewing the idea that there wasn't anything to say to the person with the speck in their eyes. It might be nice to help them get that out of their eye. It probably isn't comfortable. The point of that text is not to say there wasn't something wrong. There wasn't a sin that needed to be addressed. There wasn't counsel that needed to be given. The point was that the way you did it in expressing that I don't have that brokenness, but you do, so let me tell you how to fix you, didn't come across well. And especially if there's a conscious belief that I actually don't commit that sin. And therefore, perhaps I'm somewhat better than you. The Bible rails against such judgmentalism as it happily, and, and I mean happily in the sense of the joy of doing the Lord's work, reminds us that sin is real. And that it reaping a harvest in someone's life is a tragedy. And so Paul wants to encourage that there is no escape excuse, that the sheer uh, weight of knowledge of brokenness and sin in our own lives should give us a humility, even as we are called, to discern. It would be rather ironic if we weren't supposed to judge for Paul to write several verses about the bad things that other people do. In all of our discussions about right and wrong and coming alongside, the, the very knowledge that God bothers to tell us that there's sin and seems to indicate that even after the resurrection, we have an opportunity to do battle against sin, this side of glory. Means that we are to discern right and wrong. 
but there is a difference between discerning right and wrong and the kind of Greek word that's used here in passing judgment and holding the gavel in our hand that is only God's to hold. The answer, of course, is repentance. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So in the movie, the, there's this interesting relationship between Matthew McConaughey and his parents. And you can't really tell if his mom keeps doing the laundry and loving on him because she loves him uh, or uh, she's frustrated. She's clearly frustrated enough to hire Sarah Jessica Parker to help her son get out of the house. That although she's willing to love and serve, that shouldn't be misconstrued as you don't need to get out on your own. You don't need to grow up in your faith. So the extension of love and care and a roof over one's head shouldn't be misunderstood as, and this is a really great situation which should continue forever. God's love and graciousness is meant to give us space in his power to make other decisions reflective of the nature and character of those who are created in the image of God. It's meant to be a safe place to grow, not to stay and having a failure to launch into a life of Christ. The forbearance is meant for us to have the room to repent, to head in a new direction, to head towards Christ and towards his kingdom. This is very different, of course, from feeling sorry, which sometimes legalism fosters. We feel sorry because we feel beat up by the constant haranguing of all of the things we do wrong. It really is only in the context of truth in love that repentance is possible. One has to create a situation where the grace and love and forbearance and patience of God which does have an end, is not used as a space to not do anything, to not move in a direction of following Christ, which again, as we remember, repentance is not sorry. It is, I've been headed the wrong direction. I should turn around and go a different way. Sorry is a word. Repentance is an action. And this is then where we have lots of fun in the church wrestling with justification by faith alone and works righteousness. Wonderfully put in opposition to each other because of the benefits of Greek thought. One must be right and one must be wrong. Tell me which one is supposed to be the true thing. And we fight endlessly about something that Scripture really has no interest in fighting about. It just simply says both are true. They're not in war. There is no 50-50 split. 
But for Scripture, if you've repented, if you enjoy the righteousness of Christ, there just tend to be logical results. The awkward thing, and this is often said, and this is what I mean by that, we pull out our Bible verses and we fight each other, and the silliness of it is tragic because it impacts people's lives. But as one commentator uh, pointed out, that for verse 6, which seems so anathema to anything that Paul would say, the very idea that we would be judged by what we do seems antithetical to what Paul's going to say a few verses later, and it's because we can only think one-dimensionally, as opposed to allowing the graciousness and bigness of an infinite God to say both are true. I am absolutely safe and secure in God, and I am absolutely supposed to grow and produce fruit, because one reflects the other. And to say that fruit should be expected is not judgmental or antithetical to salvation by grace alone. And as long as we keep fighting those fights, the more impotent and ineffective church and spiritual growth will be. Because every time I say, well, that was harsh. I'm saved by grace alone. Is that going to help? Seventeen times in the New Testament, which is more than the Bible talks about homosexuality, seventeen times in the New Testament alone, this phrase, or something almost exactly like it, is given to us as a reminder that how we live reflects who God is and whether or not we have the foggiest notion of who our Redeemer is. Matthew seven twenty one. We are judged by what we do. 16, verse 27. Matthew, 30, uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. John 5, 28 and following. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 15. Galatians, of all places, Galatians. Paul says that what we do matters and that we should be discerning about one another's actions and that God seems mildly uh, interested in how believers live. Galatians 6, 7 and, uh, uh, 6 and 7. Ephesians 6, verse 8. Colossians 3, 24 through follow. 2 Timothy 4, 14 and following. 1 Peter 1, 17. Revelation 2, 23. Revelation 20, verse 12. Revelation 22, verse 12. We have to do business at some level with this long-standing battle in the human heart and mind in understanding the freedom and delight we have in Christ and wrestling with its implications and our brothers and sisters as they try and encourage us and point us towards living out the character and nature of God and fulfilling the hope and the joy that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Clearly in Paul's day, he needed to bring up the litany of sins and difficulties and challenges that we see at the end of chapter 1. 
those that go to the very heart of our speech, the way we talk about one another and to one another, going all the way out to the way we interact in physical love and who we interact with. Nothing is new under the sun. The challenges we face interpersonally and wrestling with the unmitigated, complete work of Christ on our behalf. And the absolute joy and expectation that we would live lives free. And the lie of the enemy, the lie of the enemy is this. That grace is opposed to growth in Christ-like character. That if I seek to embody in ever greater degrees the nature and character of Jesus, that is a form of legalism, and I don't have to do that. In fact, I shouldn't because I'm saved by grace alone. In this season, there is another round of Encouraging folks that God's love does not create expectations in one's life. And as difficult as it is recognizing that sometimes in our fallen and human state, we raise expectations inappropriately or sinfully that we desire and hope are divine. I don't know why God still encourages us to grow in Christ-like character while we wrestle with our inability to encourage ourselves, let alone others, without mixed motives, sin, and brokenness. And yet, we are. And God's righteous judgment falls on those who see the grace and mercy and love of God and say, thank you, I will take that and I will continue to act exactly as I find most effective and needful for my comfort, for my pleasure, or for my survival. That is a dangerous road to go down to expect and demand the grace of God and at the same time expect that the character and nature of God is not a reasonable expectation for the one who gave us the new heart, gave us the spirit, gave us the word, and gave us freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful in this world Lord, we desire to live in freedom, but it is so hard. I know slavery so well. I know sin. I know its darkness and its comfort, its nuance, and its security. And you are far more unnerving. I pray, Lord, that being zealous for you would bring all of the richness of joy and health love, and kindness that is true of Christ. Pray that for each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.